Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Richard Amofa of The Athletic, and Anne-Marie Batson, the journalist and broadcaster. It's Groundhog Day. Manchester United have lost a fairly important football match. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is under pressure. There's a recurring credibility problem here. United fans might have loyalty to his legend and the cause, but to an objective observer, his impact doesn't match the club's stature. Seven defeats in 11 Champions League ties is an unsustainable record. Now, the last thing he needs is a Premier League game against the ghost of United's past, David Moyes. Richard, lose at West Ham on Sunday and the pressure will really ramp up, won't it? I think it will, not to a large extent, but I think losing to a previous manager in Moyes who who has had a resurgence at West Ham and we've seen the, the great job he's done at the club there, the questions will start to be asked. I mean, I mean, the result in, in Europe was poor, you know, obviously questions about his, his game management and especially with the, with the squad that's been assembled this season, you, you're, you're expecting to hit the ground running, which to be fair, United have, you know, United have, have done okay in the league, you know, great result last weekend against Newcastle, but as you say, two defeats in a row and questions will start to be asked, unfortunately. There won't be any concerns or issues about Solskjaer's job. I think he's safe and I think we can see what he's doing at the club and players are getting better on his watch. But as, as you say, two two defeats in a row, as you say, with a squad of that quality and the experience that they've got as well now as well, it, it won't be seen as good enough. Of course, there'll be pressure, but I think in the long run, you know, you look at United's away form, you know, obviously they broke the away record recently for wins and... I think the only thing that United have on their side is West Ham playing in Europe tonight, even on Thursday evening. So they may they may be a bit fatigued, and obviously the missing Antonio through suspension will, will, be, will be a big benefit to United's defence as well. So I think having those factors on side should see United through the game. But you know, lose lose to West Ham with all those factors that I've mentioned about them, and yeah, there will definitely be questions asked about them. Yeah, I suppose Amory, you know, we're in a situation where it only takes a defeat to trigger what seems to be an underlying mistrust. There's a drip-drip effect of criticism. Now, what happens when that criticism comes from, you know, stellar figures from the club's past? I'm thinking here of, of Peter Schmeichel commenting on on what he termed Solskjaer's weird decisions in Switzerland. 
Does that have more of an impact simply because of who it comes from? I think it really depends on the person, to be honest with you. If, for example, if Sir Alex Ferguson, though he would never do this, if he'd come out and said those things, I think there'd be a lot of eyes opening going, oh my goodness, Sir Alex has spoken. Coming from Peter Schmeichel, I'm not so much. What I will say, though, I think it's really unhelpful. Whilst I appreciate people are entitled to their opinions and they are going to give their opinions, I think it's unsettling and it can create a lot of noise as well. And what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to have to do, which he has been doing for a long period of time, is to block out the noise and just get on with the job at hand. At the end of the day, he's the one who's standing at the edge of the touchline making some very late decisions around game management, player choices, formations, all those kinds of things. He's the one who has the pressure on his shoulders. So he's just going to have to block all that nonsense out and just get on with the job in hand. What about the Ronaldo factor, Rich? Now, we know from past experience that he's very unlikely to be backwards in coming forwards if he feels his agenda or ambitions either not being followed or being threatened. His presence does add to the strain, doesn't it? Yes, and I see where you're coming from, but I feel like in somebody like Ronaldo, with all the things that he's done in the game, with all the things that he's won, with that well-documented mentality, I don't see it being a bad thing. And sometimes a few feathers may need to be ruffled in order to get the end result. As we know, it's been well-documented that United have failed to get over the line in a number of competitions now under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, quite a few semi-finals now, and of course the Europa League final only a few months ago. So anyone who can come into the dressing room, like Rafael Varane too, with that winning mentality and with that experience, because experience is key in winning things and getting over the line. And some may see him as being, you know, as talking out of turn, but I feel like it will be invaluable to the young players in the dressing room and within the squad. We know the camaraderie is good already, and we know that the players are going to look up to him. We've already seen the likes of, of Greenwood and, and Sancho being taken under his wing. So any kind of, which some may see as a misstep or talking out of place, will it help the dressing room? Yes, because he's been there, he's done that, and he's won things at the highest level. And sometimes, as I said at the start, you do need someone to come in and maybe rough for a few feathers in order to get over the line. Bruno Fernandes has done it, and we've seen the galvanising effect that he's had in the team. So now having Ronaldo as the icing on the cake is is, is only going to galvanise the dressing room, I think. Yeah, what? Yeah, you know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to force an argument here, Anne Marie, but you know, where would the tipping point come? Would would it come in, you know, another maybe early elimination from the Champions League, uh, the availability of other viable candidates who might have a quality that's complementary to the club's ambition. I'm thinking of how Antonio Conte's available. They could have had Allegri probably in the summer. Where is that tipping point? Do you think he'll get the, whatever happens, that Solskjaer will get the season? Or are we looking at a bit of a crisis around Christmas? I think his job is pretty safe at the moment. I think for at least into the early part of next year, I couldn't see him going before Christmas. I think... For me, it's the question what Richard mentioned earlier about that game management against the top teams. How long can the fans keep, you know, asking that question? When is he going to sort that out? It, you know, it's all well and good making the mistake one or two times, but he's made it a few times now. And you're going to ask the question, when is he going to start learning from his mistakes? And I think that's the question that's going to ramp up the pressure for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as they get deeper into the Champions League itself, the competition, because I think they've got a fairly... Easy group. And I, for one, 
really assumed that they would stroll past young boys. I really did. Mm. Apologies, young boys, and I shouldn't have done that. But I fell into that trap thinking they've got, a, you know, United have got a really, really strong squad. You talk about Greenwood being lethal around the box and, and Ronaldo. So I'm thinking, yeah, walk in the park. How wrong was I? So I think it is a case of how long can the fans put up with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer not learning from his mistakes when it comes to game management and also trusting the football process as well. When it comes to European football, when it comes to those big, big moments and he has to make a decision, that is when the pressure is going to ramp up for him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, just to follow on from, from that point, I feel it's something that I've mentioned before as well. You know, there's only so many times that a team can rely on individual brilliance. And, you know, we see that time and time again, which kind of gets United out of jail. And look, you know, it's fantastic to have the quality there in the squad to, to pull results out of the bag. But I think while there is that quality in the squad, there's the one Achilles Hill which will come and bite United this season. I think that's the failure to sign a defensive midfielder. And we saw that against Young Boys on, on Wednesday in the sense that, OK, United brought Matic on to try and bring control to the game after it went down to 10 men. But... He lacks a dynamism now. And I think 11 against 11, I think Matic would have been perfect to help see the game out in terms of him keeping the ball and things like that. But when where, where United did have a man down, they lacked that dynamism. Someone to, one, have that defensive screen in front of the defence, but also to, as you say, build attacks from the back. And that failure to get in that top-class defensive midfielder will prove costly, I feel, moving forward, especially in the in the big games. Or even even games I say with young boys where the game's on, on the line, you know, I think with a defensive midfielder, the game gets seen out. And I think United win that game. Not comfortably, but I see the game out. I think we're gonna to continue to see these issues crop up this season. And I think failure to strengthen in that position will bite United moving forward. Yeah, there's an irony here, isn't there, Amory, that that on Sunday they'll come up against probably the ideal candidate. Declan Rice. <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't script it better, could you? All the talk about Declan Rice potentially going to United this summer, nothing happened, and, and the talk hasn't really gone away, has it? I think the rumours are still bubbling away, and it will be interesting to see how David Moyes is going to set up on Sunday because because they play in the Europa League, and Declan Rice. I think there's going to be a lot of eyes on him as well but yeah you just it's it's perfect really it's a perfect story for a good match on Sunday yeah I would imagine you know the way these transfers work is that you know pretty much there'll be nods and winks that you'll probably go somewhere next summer what about David Moyes Rich how impressed have you been by him you know he's he's, he's essentially assembling another sort of like Czech Czech Republic national team isn't he basically but He's done terrifically well at a club that is difficult to manage. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it was only a few years ago we saw fans coming into the pitch and, and, and laying flags in the, in the centre circle. As such was a discontent at, at the ownership. But I, th- I think with Moyes, what, what he does well and what he gets his size to do well is to do the simple things really well. So that's, you know, intensity, that's pressing high. I wouldn't say they play extraordinary football, but... The fact they do the basics really well has proven to be really, really effective. And getting the side to play to the strengths of Antonio Rice, controlling the midfield with his energy and, and his passing, and even the likes of Four Niles, who who started a bit slowly, I would say, but um, his his engine and his quality in the ball is really coming to the fore. And the likes of Bowen, his pace and utilizing that properly, and also Ben Rama, you know, someone who we know is 
got heaps of quality, really skillful, and again, Moyes took his time, and he does that with new signings. He, he gives them time to bed in, to get up to to, to scratch fitness-wise, and also to the demands of what, which he demands. And um, now we see him flying as well. And there's a great camaraderie within the squad. I feel like, you know, even though the likes of Mark Noble aren't playing as much, I feel like, you know, he's really important behind the scenes, as is the likes of Kevin Nolan in the backroom staff as well. So all of those things combined, again, really simple factors, but they're all really combining to to, to really good effect. Yeah, I can I can see Mark Noble, who, who I think is an admirable character. I can see him becoming a manager one day. There's something about him, I think. Speaking of players from clubs stepping up to be manager, I suppose we you know almost it's a, a, a an oligana social theme here for Arsenal, Emery. Mikel Arteta, you know, he's another one who's subject to recurrent doubt. What do you think about him with big decisions? You know, I, I was a bit bemused when he, make, he makes the decision, the big decision, he drops Leno for Norwich, the, that win against Norwich, in favour of Aaron Ramsdale. But then off the back of that, he promises him a place against Spurs in the North London derby on Sunday week. I don't get that. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit perplexed by that as well. And I'm kind of thinking uh, it might change. It might change. I've got no problem with Aaron Ramsdale playing in goal for Norwich. I think it was a case that, look, no disrespect to Norwich. I like them as a team, but it was Norwich. So it was a good chance to bed him in in terms of the team, just to see how he would set up in terms of commanding the box, his distribution, and also working in front of the defensive line. It's... It is a big decision to make. You know that. Leno is decent. You know, he has saved Arsenal several times with some decent shot stoppers. But there is a problem, I feel, with him commanding that box and playing out from the back. And I think that is what Arteta is looking to do. So he has got a big decision to make. I just look at what Chelsea did. What Chelsea did, spending, what, £72 million on Kepa. Didn't deliver, so they go out and bought another keeper, Mendy, who's just been absolutely fantastic for them. That takes ruthlessness. And I think if that's what if that's the way that Arteta is going for Arsenal in terms of the goalkeeping situation, to improve the goal difference at the moment in the Premier League, then so be it. It's it's a tough decision to make, but that's what being a coach forward slash manager is all about, having to make those tough decisions. It's going to be interesting if he does go through with that decision to have Ramsdale in the North London derby because there's going to be a lot riding on that match. Spurs are going to be wounded after what happened at Crystal Palace. Arsenal will be slightly buoyant, and I say slightly buoyant, about the result at Norwich because it's Norwich, but it is a big game nonetheless for both teams. Yeah, it certainly is for Burnley. And I suppose Burnley are the sort of team, Rich, who are likely to bully Arsenal. You know, I've noticed in these early games, there's almost, a, you know, but they're actually more aggressive almost, it seems to be. You know, there was, a, there, was a, there was a challenge which was unpunished by Tarkovsky, who I, I really like as a, a centre-half, on Richarlison at Everton, which I just, I just went, wow. Does this have a feel of a game that Sean Dyche thinks he has to win? Yes, absolutely. And I know the challenge you're referencing. And I was shocked that, I mean, the referee didn't even, you know, talk to Tarkovsky afterwards. Yeah, I know. I mean, especially considering other challenges that have been punished this season. Uh, I know referees are looking to be a bit more lenient. But, you know, if you start letting challenges like that go, you know, it it does set a a dangerous precedent. We've already seen serious injuries already, although, you know, you get well soon, Javier, that was that was slightly unfortunate or slightly different. But I mean, tackles like that, yeah, you know, you have to read that out because I mean, that was kind of start going off tangent here, but 
he was going away from goal. It was at the touchline, wasn't he? And he's completely gone through him there for bygone era. But I mean, yeah, I mean, looking at looking at the game on on uh, um, this weekend, I think Burnley will look at Arsenal as a uh, slightly wounded, slightly wounded in the sense that um, okay, Norwich was a good result, but they still have a lot to prove. History tells us that they will be physical against them, and we've seen that physicality has been Arsenal's Achilles' heel. But I, I, I don't know. A bit of me feels that the over aggressiveness is almost masking and papering over the cracks in terms of Burnley's deficiencies. Because Burnley this season, they've started a lot of games very well. They've, they've actually taken the lead in three of their four games and, and come away with only one point this season. So it says to me a team that are either lacking in quality going forward and also fatigued. I think I mentioned before that for the last three or four seasons now, the, the team, the starting eleven has pretty much been the same. And they've played a lot of games together, which on the one hand, OK, you see a cohesive unit. You know what you're going to get from Burnley. And, 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 and you know, Burnley... 4 4 2, they're going to be solid, they're going to be strong. But is, is there a sense of fatigue coming in there? Because we've seen in the last half hour of games, they're, they're, they're letting leads slip. We saw how Everton blew them away on, on Monday. And, and it's something that is a bit of a concern because, you know, it's all well and good starting games well. But if you can't get the result over the line, it's going to be a problem moving forward. You know, they've brought in Maxwell Corney, who will bring something different, but he's not going to be the saviour. So yeah, I mean, it would be a tough game for Arsenal, and Burnley will be will be physical, of course. But if Arsenal show the quality which we know that they can play, they should they should win the game. But have they got the quality at the back, Amory, to withstand what's obviously going to be a barrage of set pieces? If Gabriel's playing, yes, because <laughs> I because <laughs> that. He's built like a... He's a bit of a unit, isn't he, Gabriel? I mean, this this game would be perfect for him, I would say. Uh, ben White, well, I mean, obviously he's he's played in the back line when he was at Brighton, so he's come against up against Bernie. It's going to be interesting, for sure, and I, I agree with what Rich is saying. It's just also a case that... A couple of things. Arsenal, don't be negative against Burnley. Don't allow them to control the game. Play at a high tempo and for goodness sake, don't give away any own goals, which is exactly what happened when Burnley came to the Emirates that time ago. So, yeah, they're going to have to be ready. But I think, yeah, Richard's right. I mean, those, you know, take advantage of the fact that I think fatigue is playing a part in Burnley. And they only, you know, with Chris Wood being there, you've got to isolate him. And I think if you can do that defensively, that gives Arsenal a real chance. Because at the moment, I do feel sometimes that Arsenal have got a bit of a hoodoo with Burnley, and they're going to be playing at Turf more as well, so the crowd's going to be ferocious. Good luck taking the knee as well, because I'm going to be interested to see what reaction's going to come from that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting game for sure. Yeah, one game that is always interesting for a variety of reasons, Spurs at home to Chelsea, that's on Sunday. You know, as you mentioned earlier on, you know, European demands could have an influence on these this weekend's fixtures. With Spurs, let's be honest here, do they actually need the extra competitive demands of the Conference League, which is basically something you get at the bottom of a lucky bag, isn't it? Even if they win it, which logically they should have a really good chance, they won't get any credit for winning it, will they? I think you're right, Mike. It's a, it's a lose-lose situation, really, because as you say, if they, they win it, People just say shrug their shoulders and say, well, on paper, you've probably got the strongest squad there, so you should do. And we'll be tired if they don't win it or, 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 or you know, slip up against some of the lesser sides. So it's a tough one that Nino Espirito Santo has got to manage. 
really. And, you know, the first game against Ren, you know, Ren, Ren are a good side. They've got some good players, you know, Jeremy Doku, they've got Sulimana, you know, two exciting talents, very skillful, very quick, and they will cause problems to Spurs' already depleted back line. So they they will have, they will exert themselves in the Conference League, uh, I'll say tonight when, when this comes out. And, you know, you'd hope for their sake that it doesn't have a knock-on effect on the league. But I think the exertions in that game, in a competition where, they, you know, they think that they, they may be able to rotate, it, it will have its knock-on effect on the league, unfortunately. And as you say, is it something that they could do without? Yes. But do they need to perform in it? Yes. Because, you know, they need to maintain morale. And we know consistency and good results breed good results. So they need to keep the good habits and, and, and maintain that consistency 100%. Yeah, well, they certainly need to answer the, the doubts thrown up by that awful performance at Palace, don't they, Amory? Can we look at extenuating circumstances here? You know, the whole club v country thing is chaotic, and we've spoken about it over the last week or two. I suppose probably the club most affected by by all that nonsense, you know, in terms of the injuries that were picked up on international duty and also the absences because of quarantine issues. Yes, yes. But let's not take away the performance from Crystal Palace. And I think that slightly got lost within this discussion about the fact that Tottenham were missing Sun. They were missing first choice centre-backs because of the whole issue around the international matches and injuries and COVID and so on and so forth. And I thought that really took a little bit away from Crystal Palace. I thought they were absolutely brilliant. I watched that match. It was end-to-end, breathless at times. It was such a good performance from them. Yes, it's a factor for, for Spurs. Of course it is. But then they've got a big squad to manage that. That's the whole point of the money that has been spent over the years to have a plan A, plan B, plan C and a plan D. So knowing that two of your players were going to be out of the country anyway, because they were on international duty, what was going to be the plan B? So you have you look at the players that you have. So, I, you know, I'm just... I can't accept entirely that the result was down to the fact that Spurs were missing key players because they've got a big enough squad to cope with these issues, really. So, And I don't want to take a cr- the credit away from Crystal Palace because I thought they played absolutely brilliantly. I mean, Edward, goodness me, what can you say about him? Conor Gallagher, what can you say about him? And also, you had teams last season that had the same issues with covid Injuries and international duty as well. And everybody's had to make their way around it and cope. So I don't want to take it away from the absolute mind-blowing performance that Crystal Palace delivered at the weekend. Yeah. Chelsea, though, Rich, are very unlikely to be forgiving of any weakness, aren't they? You know, if you look at it, they're a team now which controls games exceptionally well. Begs the question of, of Thomas Tuchel's influence in terms of tactical acumen, would he be going over the top to suggest he's now rivaling Guardiola for, for, for that quality? No, it wouldn't. And we've, we've even seen when Tuchel has come up against Guardiola over the last three or four games that he's got the better of him and he's outfought him in a number of different number of different ways. You know, we saw in the Champions League final how they completely nullified City's threat to the point that City really looked like scoring? Probably not. And they were lethal in the counter-attack. And we saw it again in the FA Cup as well. So, you know, I feel like with regards to that, you have to give Tuchel credit because he you know, came in in January and he put his stamp on the side pretty quickly, set up in a 3-4-3 formation and made themselves very difficult to beat. They got a nice double pivot in there with Jorginho and Kovacic or Kante when he's fit. Now Saul's coming in as well, so they've got the depth there. 
he deserves all, all the praise for firstly making them difficult to beat because they were conceding far too many goals under Frank Lampard. And now in Lukaku, they've now I think now that's the that's the cherry on top of the cake. You know, it's just someone who okay, he's very lethal in front of goal. He started off very well. And the only negative that I would say about Tuchel in the beginning was that Chelsea weren't scoring enough goals. You know, they had quite a few nil-nils and they actually underperformed their XG by quite a lot, which showed that I think it was like 10 goals which they're underperforming by, which which makes a massive difference. And it will do this season because Lukaku will be the one who, who with, his, you know, with his shot rate already this season and his, his scoring rate, it's four goals already. It, it's someone who, who's, who's going to be the difference in terms of making up those goals and ultimately those points to challenge for the league this season. Yeah, well, Lukaku's already looking like a £97 million bargain, isn't he? One thing that strikes me about Tuchel Amory is that he's not afraid of, of the big decision, you know, and he can be quite dogmatic. In that context, if you're Ben Chilwell, would you think you're in danger of really being marginalised here? Yes, I would say so because Tuchel has been ruthless with some of his decisions and he's, you know, look, Tammy Abraham is now at Roma and I think that would probably send a pretty strong signal to the rest of the Chelsea team of Tuchel's mindset when it comes to making those big decisions on on key players. And yeah, for Chilwell as well, you know, what everything what happened at the Euros or the lack of game time he got at the Euros. So I think he is in danger. He's not the only one, to be fair. I don't think the spotlight should be just on him, but he is somebody that's not getting the game time and you've got to question what his, dare I say, what his future is at Chelsea. Is it a case that he's going to be a squad player and he'll play in like the, the League Cup, like the Carabao Cup and the early rounds of the FA Cup? Or is it a case he's going to be pretty much on the bench for most of the season unless there's a... Fingers crossed this doesn't happen, but a, an injury to a key player. I wouldn't blame Chilwell to question what's going on. And one would think that he would have that conversation with Tuchel to find out what is going on. But yeah, I think he is in danger of of potentially becoming marginalised. Mm, there's a, there's a, a little bit of a pattern emerging here, Rich. You know, when you look at John Stones at Manchester City, I think, and I stand to be corrected here, but I think he's played for England nine times since he had his last start for Manchester City. A player of that quality and ambition has got a finite amount of patience, hasn't he? It's interesting that that City really, you know, they they seem to have marginalised Laporta last season. Now it's recurring with Stones. Where if again, same sort of question. If you're John Stones, what do you do? Again, it's a strange one for regards to Stones because he, he recently signed a new deal at Manchester City and he, he, he almost had a kind of renaissance last season, didn't he? I mean, again, this time last season, he was out the side. People were questioning his performances, questioning his future. And then he came back into the side and was absolutely phenomenal, you know, for, for, for the kind of title run and, and for the latter part of the season. Earned himself a new deal. And obviously, he was really good at the Euros as well. So maybe it could just be a thing where... He's come back from the Euros late. He may not be up to speed physically. Maybe Guardiola's got questions about that and he's just waiting for him to get back up to full fitness before throwing him in again. But you would you would say, you know, if you are Stones, you would say, well, you've just signed me on to a longer-term deal. Why am I not starting? Why am I not playing more regularly? You know Guardiola's got a plan. He always does for these kind of situations. But even still, I mean, I say the season is four four games into it now. And we saw in, in the international break, Stones 
looks fine, you know, he look, looks fresh and he performed quite well. So it is it's a bit it's a bit baffling, I must say. But um yeah, I do expect to see him back in the lineup soon, especially when you look at their defence, obviously midweek against Leipzig, you know, conceding three goals at home is not great. And yeah, I think as you say, if I'm Stones, I'm thinking I've signed this new deal, I should be the prominent defender next to Diaz. Why am I not that? Rather than his right to start asking questions. Yeah, it was a bit of a hair and scaring game on Wednesday night against Leipzig. Pep was in a funny mood, Amory, it seemed to me. He had a pop at Jack Grealish, basically for not being, you know, having enough defensive diligence, which struck me as strange because I know in the previous game, I think he made a 70-yard doggy run in the last minute or two to to make a saving tackle. But then he went a little bit further and he, he had a little bit of a snipe at the fans basically saying, look, you've got to turn up when we play Southampton on Saturday. We've all heard the jibes about the empty hat and everything else, which is not a bad line, but it's it's a bit dismissive, isn't it? Was he right to expect more passion? You also had a pop at Riyad Mahrez as well, I saw. So I don't, I have no idea what that was about yesterday. He's going through his Victor Meldrew phrase. I know, it? it made me just woke up on the wrong side of... Bird yesterday. Imagine, like, for Jack Grealish, you're getting your first chance to play in your Champions League, which is what you've always wanted. You're lining up against Kevin De Bruyne and then you get a telling off from the head, the coach on the touchline because you're not tracking back, even though you did so in the previous games. Odd. It's really odd. I, I don't understand that. And I don't understand about the fans either because I know there's been a lot of talk on social media about the cost of season tickets for this season for Manchester City fans. You also got kids back at school. It's a school night as well. You've got to take that into consideration. So I just find that really, really odd. I know that perhaps the numbers weren't necessarily there. It wasn't a sellout last night from what I understand. Close to, but not just there. But it's the atmosphere as well. The talk about the lack of atmosphere that there is at the Etihad. So I don't know. I just I just found that really, really odd. Maybe Guardiola just wasn't feeling the energy from the crowd. But I think from what I've seen on social media the the fans beg to differ they think it's a deeper issue it's more about the cost of the the season ticket and also the fact that some of these matches are on nights where people can't travel or it's a school night so I think it's I think it was a bit of a sweeping statement for Guardiola to make last night it's not going to make him popular with the fans that is for sure no well the the usual way of getting on side with the fans is to go and buy a big big new player isn't it and City inevitably are always linked to these players Specifically, Haaland, who's now got, I think it's 21 in 17 Champions League games. Also, Jude Bellingham, Rich. He's going to be the next 100 million plus English signing, isn't he? I'm so glad you brought him up, Mike, because watching him against Besiktas yesterday, I wouldn't say it's a coming of age performance because we know he's got this in his locker, but... Seeing that maturity at a difficult place, you know, the cauldron of noise, that stadium. And, you know, we've seen players wilt under that noise and, and, and atmosphere. But it was Jude Bellingham who stood up, took control of the game, a goal and an assist and, you know, a, a fantastic all-round performance. I think it's really time to start talking about him as the kind of one of the leading young players, within, you know, in the world. And that kind of, you know, 80, that age group, I think it's 2003 from the right, there's a lot of good players that kind of roster now but Drew Benham is definitely at the top of that list and if he continues with these performances we're going to see the big clubs sniffing around especially in England to bring him back back home but 
yeah, I mean, he, he, he's been absolutely phenomenal. He's got everything in this game. And just to have that maturity at that age, it's frightening, really. As you said, I think it's 19 now. I apologise. But to have that maturity in this game is, is absolutely frightening. And he's only going to get better. He's only going to get stronger. He's only going to get more now tactically as well. He's got a fantastic future. And if he can stay fit, you know, that he can go right to the very top. Yeah, he's one of these names that sort of crop up you know, when there's when he's barely out of infant school. I remember hearing a lot about him when he was about 12 years old. You know, this is the kid. You know, to me, he was always pushed to me by some of the recruitment guys that this is going to be like the next Rooney, Wayne Rooney. In overall terms, he's, he's, he's a much more complete player probably than Rooney. On the other end of the age scale, Amory, Liverpool are being linked with the player that Jurgen Klopp characterises as the best player he's ever coached, i.e. Lewandowski. When he gets to England, which I think he probably will, how good will he be? Oh, immense. Can you imagine? <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a legend of the game. He's a legend of his country as well. And uh, to have him potentially, you know, if Liverpool can secure his services... Ooh, I think that's going to send a shiver down the spines of the the, the rest of the Premier League, for sure. And I, I'd love to see him in the Premier League. I think you know when you see certain players, when you see certain players, and you just see the way the, the way that they are on the pitch and their style, and you think I'd just love to see him in the the Premier League because the Premier League is a brute, it's a brutal competition. It really is brutal competition, and you need that mental toughness, the physicality to cope with the pace of the game and I think it would be perfect for Lewandowski. Yes, he's reaching the certain tail end of his career, but as we've seen recently with certain players that have come to, let's say, the twilight years, dare I say that, of their careers, like the Ronaldos of this world, like the Thiago Silvers of this world, they can still play a massive part in a game. So to have somebody like him come and join Liverpool, wow, that would be, I think... You know, Liverpool fans will just be just blowing their minds because I think that'll be a brilliant signing for them if he comes, of course. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, you know, there was it was a typical Champions League night at Anfield, wasn't it, Rich? They came from behind, as they always seem to do against uh, AC Milan. Jordan Henderson, you know, terrific technique for the goal, but also you know sense of occasion. Is it going over the top to actually? Talk to him or talk of him as as this generation Steven Gerrard. I, I think I think it is only because of everything that Gerrard did in terms of Gerrard being in a it's fair to say a, a lesser side and really dragging them from from the depths and the pits of wherever they were to win games single handedly. But if you look at Henderson's overall impact on that Liverpool squad, being a leader. Really taking charge, you know. We know Scott has spoken about mentality monsters in the past, and Henderson really embodies that. I think that's where the slight kind of point of contention is around his contract, in the sense that Henderson still feels that he's got a big role to play, not just being that leader behind the scenes. And I think scoring goals like that and being a talismanic figure within the squad, it 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 does kind of go to show that okay, he is still a key key player for Liverpool on the pitch as well as off it. And I say the quality, how he took that was was fantastic, and he he really embodies the kind of mentality that Liverpool have had over the years. Mm. And also, in a in a almost like a cultural sense, Trent Alexander Arnold fulfills the 
the need on Merseyside almost for for you know the, the traditional local hero, as it were. You know, we've had the sort of psychodrama of him being played in midfield. He was excellent going forward last night, Anne-Marie. Now, I'm going to sorry for this hand grenade of a question, <laughs> but defensively, he is suspect, isn't he? Just simply because he, the people can get behind him. Yeah, and the goals that came from AC Milan came on his side, unfortunately. And that's been the big discussion point about Trent Alexander-Arnold. Fantastic player. I love his tenacity. He's ferocious. But defensively, the question marks still remain. And I think he really exposed him yesterday, which is most unfortunate because I think he's had to battle a little, a little bit with his reputation as a player and the dare I say, the nonsense of putting him in the midfield for England. It just didn't work for me. So in a game like that, I think he he was saved really because of the Jordan Henderson goal, because Liverpool got that win. But yes, I think it's something that he's going to have to look at, unfortunately, or something that Klopp is going to have to look at because teams will look at that result last night, particularly in the Champions League, when the stakes are even more higher and say that is the side, the right-hand side that we could potentially attack because there's a little bit of a softness there. So hopefully on the training ground, either today or tomorrow, they'll look at that, the team will look at that and analyse that and come up with the, the best way to manage it. But yeah, one, you know, it was unfortunate for him really to be exposed in that way. Yeah. Yeah, Rich, you're... I suppose I could call you a data aficionado. Is that is that is that fair? I'll take that. Okay, good. Wolves, you know, they played Brentford in the BT Sport Saturday lunchtime game. All the stats suggested that there was nothing to worry about because of their sort of pretty rocky start to the season. They usually won at Watford. Do you expect them now just to kick on? I do because in those first three games when they were struggling to win and were struggling to score. I think they had about 50 or 51 shots, which is it's an incredible amount. And it goes to show, you know, they do have the quality to create chances and cause problems. Of course, with the likes of Adama Triore, he's just such a threat. And I really like the, the look of Trincao, who's come in as well. Excellent quality. They may just have a, a bit too much with Brentford. You know, if everybody's on song, obviously Jimenez back in the fold as well. I think they can really kick on because, as you say, they've shown that they can control games. You know, they probably pretty much on top against Manchester United, for example. And it was just a case of scoring goals. And now I think they've got that win over the line. It's something for them to build on. Do you think, you know, the perception is, Amory, that Brentford are probably the most likely of the three promoted clubs to, to survive. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I would, actually. I was looking at it yesterday and the predictor scale, if you like, they they reckon that Brentford could finish around the 15, 16 mark, which I, you know, I could agree with. I mean, they're, they're exciting to watch. They, they create chances, the wave after wave after attacks that they have. And they've got that, you know, that promotion bounce still in, in their feet. So, yeah, I mean, putting the Arsenal assault result to the side because I'm a, a, a gooner, I, I still like the fact that Brentford really believe and you can see it in their play that they are part of the Premier League. There's no fear. There's no fear to them whatsoever. They're absolutely fearless, and you need that in the Premier League. So, you know, with their coach as well, Thomas Frank, who I, I like his openness. He's very refreshing. Says it how it is as well. I think you know. I think it's going to stand them in good stead. They just you know the goals are going to come from Ivan Tony for sure, but they need a couple of more goal scorers as well as we get deeper and deeper into the competition. But yeah, I, I fully expect them to be part of the new season when it comes. Yeah, so if, if 
Brentford have got a promotion bounce. Have Norwich and Watford had a promotion thud? You know, when you think about it, Richard, they play each other at, at Carrow Road on, on Saturday. It's very easy, so I'll take the chance. It is, it is almost like the first real relegation six-pointer of the season, isn't it? I think I think it's, it's, it's fair to say. I think where, where Watford are concerned, you know, they started the season very well and when you look at the result against Villa, you're thinking, oh, OK, you know, this is exciting. They do have exciting players, you know, Ismail Saar, Emmanuel Dennis, and they've got quality there. I think Watford's issue is that last season when they were on the way to promotion, Again, as we see in modern football these days, pressing very, very high, high intensity. But they've seemed to take a step back this season. A colleague at Levertal has written a piece in it recently that I think they're among the, the worst team in terms of pressing. Got the lowest stats for that anyway. And it's beginning to impact them because once teams kind of break that low block, they do have that kind of soft underbelly, which we're seeing exposed. Granted, they've played against some, some good quality sides, of course, but in this six-pointer, let's say, I do expect them to overcome Norwich because, again, looking at them, okay, Norwich have had upheaval in the backroom staff, you know, they've lost heads of recruitment and stuff like that, but they have recruited relatively well over the summer. You know, the likes of Billy Gilmore, the likes of, you know, Rashika, etc. But I think there's still a bit of a hangover from the previous Premier League campaign. And the longer they go without a win, I think they're at 14 now, only two goals scored in that run. One coming from the guy that's out to Villa, Rendia, of course. So you're looking at where the goal's going to come from. And again, such a poor soft underbelly. Do they need to change the way they play? Because they are exciting and they've got good players. But once they once teams penetrate, teams have gone to score two, three, four against them. And it's really difficult to see how they improve unless they kind of change their whole setup, I feel. You're staying with Watford, Amory, you know, as you know, we said before you started, you, you, you spent some time yesterday with Daniel Backman, the Watford goalkeeper. How did he come across and what sort of vibe do you get from Watford at the moment? He's a really good talker. And I say that because he just shared a lot of stuff in terms of what we were talking about, the game against Norwich. He's aware that Watford have beaten Norwich home and away when it is in the championship. But he alluded to that they need to create chances. And he kept stressing that a lot in the interview yesterday, which I thought was really interesting. And I talked about with him about Ishmael Saar and also Manuel Dennis as well. Cucho Hernandez, who, you know, Richard talked about where the goals are going to come from. Those three, there's a lot of eyes on those three. And uh, for him, for Backman, it is, he, he was stressing a lot about, you know, there's a good team spirit. There's a great atmosphere. There's a lot of love for Coach Zisco, always smiling on the training field and on the pitch as well. It's creating those chances and it's his job, Daniel Backman's job, to stop the goals. And it's been a real step up in terms of stopping the wave and wave of attacks that have been coming over the the last few weeks. He also talked about their performances as well. Good start against Aston Villa, of course, and then they've had three defeats since that. And he was very cautious of the fact that, you know, he talked about there's still good performances in there despite the result. And he feels like they are getting closer to getting another win in the Premier League. Says, you know, they totally understand as a team that they're not necessarily going to win every match, but they want to to stop the losses. They want to get more wins. So that's what we talked about yesterday. And a really, really interesting guy. It's been a totally whirlwind last few months from him for having been the second choice goalkeeper at Watford, effectively at Championship and then Ben Foster getting injured, Backman stepping up, and then playing in the Euros as well as the Austrian 
goalkeeper for them, playing a big part in the Euros and now playing in the in the Premier League. And uh, he it's he's still trying to take it all in, but loving life at the moment and loving his football. Yeah, it was interesting. I was looking at the Football 365 website this morning and they did a, a summary, Rich, of the most foul players in the Premier League this season. Jack Grealish was third. Uh, Will Sahar, to no one's probably great surprise, was second. I was surprised at the identity of the, of the most foul player. That's, that is uh, Ismailia Saar. You know, he was meant to be on Liverpool's radar. Are you surprised he's still at Watford? I am, because I thought when they got relegated, I, I, you know, as we know, clubs were circling around him. And he's a player who can bring a lot, especially to, to the big clubs in terms of their strength and depth. He's such an exciting player. And, you know, these are kind of players who, who you know, get crowds off their feet. He, he's extremely quick, skillful, direct. And I, I think he would have been a good fit for Liverpool, to be fair, in terms of the way they play. So I was surprised that they didn't kind of get that one over the line. Obviously, all credit to Watford for keeping him. And maybe it's just a case of, OK, you're back in the Premier League now. Show show us what you can do, and if if Watford go down again, then he's a great asset to have if they do want to want to sell. He's an excellent player. I love watching him play. He's always a threat, and again, as you say, if he has a good season, you know the the, the world is oyster. You can definitely hold his own at one of the top clubs. I feel. Yeah, let's try and wrap it up if we could, and, and look finally at the England's women's team. They begin a World Cup qualifying campaign against North Macedonia at Southampton on Friday. Amory, obviously you follow that team quite closely. Have they got the potential to provide a much-needed feel-good story? Yes, this will be a period of change for the England Lionesses for sure. They've changed their head coach, their manager and Wiegmann from Phil Neville. I think it's a it's a massive upgrade considering that if you look at her CV, I mean, it's just amazing, 104 caps the Netherlands, she took them to the European Championships, which they won in 2017, runner-ups at the World Cup at 2019. You know, that's huge. Definite upgrade on that front. However, things have moved along a lot in women's football over the last few years, particularly from the European side. So they need somebody of that calibre to recognise the strength and depth of the competition now coming from the likes of France and Spain, Sweden and Germany. And therefore, the European Championships are coming up fairly soon. So she hasn't got a lot of time, to be honest. She hasn't got many international windows to work out what the best team is going to be for the European Championships. So I think we're going to see some fresh faces, as you saw in the announcement that came out the other day. You also saw that she's chosen players who are quite versatile as well. We all know that Leah Williamson, she can play in defence, she can play in midfield. It's the same with Rachel Daly as well, which I think is very, very interesting for sure. And she'll look to capitalise on that as well. But also there's a changing of the guard, I would say. For the last few years, there have been some absolute servants to the women's game, the likes of Jill Scott and the current England captain, Steph Horton, as well. At some point, those changes are going to come, whether it comes within this window, if you like, within this season or the next season or so. I think it's a chance now to see some fresh faces, as you saw in the announcement with the likes of Katie Zellum being made into that team and Ella Toon. So I don't like the word transition in this sense, but it is with moving to 
a new phase now of the Lionesses because recognising the competition within the women's game is getting stronger as the months go by and Vegan recognising there's some real good talent in the WSL in terms of the English side and wanting to work with those players and probably going to be working for those players for the next few years or so. Yeah, well, there's only been, I think there's about four wins in the last 12, Rich, going into uh, Serena Wiegmann's first match in charge. With the Euros coming up, that is a, that is a they have to do well in that, don't they? Simply because it is such a platform for the women's game. Hundred percent, and and with the Euros being on on home turf as well, I, I think it's it's really important. I think you know, as I've already said, that you say not really a transition, but definitely a freshening up of, of faces within the squad. I feel like over the last couple of years very, very reliant on, on Ellen White for her goals and obviously we saw in the Olympics that, you know, she's she's obviously capable but, you know, it's time for Forrest to step up now and as again, as I mean, we said, the likes of Katie Zellum coming in, Ella Toon, who, who I like because she's a very, very clever player, picks up great pockets of space. The one player I'm really excited to see is Beth Mead, pace, quality and she started the season in, in excellent form and, you know, if she can bring that to the England side then, it gives Riegman a lot, a lot of uh, questions and things to ponder because there's evident quality there, there's, and there is quality around, around around the pitch. It's just a case of building on that, and I I, I do agree that Riegman is an upgrade on Phil Neville. I think that you know he, he kind of lost his way a bit, tinkered far too much, but as I say, now it's time to have those fresh faces in that bit of quality. And I think, as you say, the names that I've mentioned, that sprinkling of quality, of course, will be far too much for North Macedonia, and they should get through this group with ease and then now it's just a case of doing it at the top level in those really big games and I feel like this kind of period of you know to say there's I think it's eight games until the European Championships now they can really get some kind of cohesion before then then you know it's exciting to see yeah well I suppose we began by talking about a question of faith Uh, we end essentially by doing the same thing England's women were ill-served by Phil Neville as national manager. And to be honest, his struggle in his sinecure at uh, Inter Miami has come as little surprise. Friday's game is likely to be a formality, but under a new coach and with a new brief, big decisions have to be made quickly. We wish them well. Because, let's face it, there's less time than we might think to get things right. In the meantime, thanks to Anne-Marie and Richard for their insight and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.